I want to welcome everyone to this week's episode of SalesCast, and we need everyone's help for an upcoming episode. In a few weeks, we're going to be releasing part two of the CPA series that we uh, did a few weeks ago, and we are looking for questions from the field, uh, questions about CPAs, questions about CPA firms, questions about partnerships. So open the app and click Share a Story, Ask a Question. We'd love to include it in that episode. But today's episode, we are dedicating entirely to Q&A, and uh, so let's go to our first question now. Hi, my name is uh, Bill. My question would be is um, for places that do uh, significant renovations uh, and have leases of 10, 15, 20 years, I'm thinking mostly of restaurants, relating to the depreciation schedules that they have, do they still have to take that 27 or the 39-year depreciation schedule? Uh, I suppose the point being is for cost seg to really help if they have a 10 or 15-year um, depreciation schedule, how much can we really benefit them, especially if they're into the least a few years, three or four years? Okay, look forward to the answer. Thank you. Well, thanks, Bill. Um, Jimmy, I usually tee all the hard questions. Do you, you want to take this one? Or? <laughs> yeah. No, no, I think you can take this one. Actually, this I, I really see this as a bigger question than, the, than just the specific question of how does a restaurant depreciate. I think this is a much bigger question that I think we probably should address as a whole, and when we get questions like this, yeah. how do we respond? Well, yeah, I guess, you know, let's start to, I'll, you know, sometimes I can answer questions without answering them. Uh, I'll try my best to answer this question. I, I think for anyone that maybe didn't understand what he was referring to, um, you know, when you open a restaurant, uh, there's a lot of components that are going to be in different buckets, let's say like the 39-year bucket. And what he's saying is when your lease term might only be seven years, um, what does the CPA do? And th- that's a really good question. What yeah. did the CPA do? Yeah. A- and um, I think, you know, first of all, in order to answer that question, we would need to see the depreciation schedule. Because one of the things I wouldn't want to do is, you know, you can imagine it's very dangerous to start casting judgment to a client and saying, well, what your CPA should have done is this, when maybe they did it different, maybe they had good reason, maybe maybe they didn't have good reason. Maybe it was lack of knowledge. Maybe maybe there's components we, do, we don't understand. But I, I think the real heart of the question is, you know, how would you handle this situation? And, you know, really, Jeremy, what it comes down to is you, you do have a bit of a sticky situation, or it could be that, again, maybe the CPA, let's take two different scenarios. Maybe the CPA took did what a lot of CPAs do. They took every component and threw it in a 39-year bucket knowing that the client is only going to be there seven years. Now, maybe some of you would say a CPA wouldn't do that, but um, trust me, they would. Yeah, it's it's exactly right, and you just never know. We've been around the block for, for a while here, and so much of it is interpretation. It's not – we talked about this in a prior sales cast. Accounting is not a black and white issue. It's just not. And you put five CPAs in a room and hand them the same scenario, and you're going to get five different responses. And because of that, it would be really tough for us to try to say what should be done without seeing what is currently being done and then make some consulting efforts on their behalf. This this is such a big question. I mean, we could probably spend a half hour on this question because it has so many rabbit trails. But let's take another aspect of this. 
And that is, you know, you've heard about the different kinds of cost seg or any depreciation for that matter. And, you know, there's accounting actual, there's accounting estimate, there's all these different, you've heard us talk about them. I won't go into all those, but one of the things, I don't want to put all this on the CPA. Um, you got to understand that a CPA doing uh, an accounting-based anything, their information of what they can do is only as good as the information that goes in. And what I mean by that is we can't assume that uh, the client actually showed them a copy of the lease. We can't assume that they properly disclosed how long they're going to stay there or any of those things. And, Jeremy, one story comes to mind. We're at a very large half-million-square-foot medical facility, and we found out that they owned another, like, $3 million building that the CPA didn't tell us about. We called the CPA. Why didn't you tell us they bought it? And the answer was... They didn't know yet. They didn't know. The client had not educated them. And so let's not blame it all on the CPA and say maybe sometimes us business owners aren't the best at letting our CPAs know exactly what our intentions are. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. You just don't know. And, again, if we look at a depreciation schedule in this instance, that's going to tell us pretty much everything that we need to know. And then we can, of course, talk to the CPA and, and help to, to guide them a little bit. But absolutely right. There's oftentimes where the CPA is out of the loop and maybe once a year they get they find out everything that happened on the prior year and then they go from there and start making their uh, making their judgments and making their decisions. But if they don't know, well, what can they do about it? Absolutely. So, you know, I, I guess to wrap that up, um, you know, the important thing to do in any cost segregation uh, environment is that we do the cost segregation properly in accordance with the case law that we can find that's applicable. And that's really what it comes down to. And and like Jeremy mentioned, until we do a review, we've talked to the client, we've looked at the depreciation schedule, we've talked to the CPA to find out what their, you know, uh, really accounting goals are and how they would like to see things. These are all the factors that could come in in play before we come in and kind of swing the sword of cost seg and say, this is black and white how it has to be done. Um, Another example that I could think of with this would be financial planning. This would be like asking a financial planner, what's the best thing to invest in? Well, there's a lot of questions that have to be answered first. What are your long-term goals? Uh, What's your income going to look like over the next years? What tax bracket are you in? I mean, there's probably a hundred things that need to be considered before you could swing the sword of this is the best plan for you. And cost segregation is really no different. No, I would, I would agree with that. And really, I guess the last thing, because we've answered this question pretty in depth, the last thing is it, whether it's this question or a similar question like this, you're always going to get these questions. Yeah. There's always going to be a similar question, a hypothetical. Hey, Jeremy, is cost say good if it's Tuesday and it's <laughs> raining and the owner only owns half the building, oh, but the depends. half of the building they own, they're inactive owners in? Yep. And these are really, besides yeah. the Tuesday and it's raining, well, these are the kind of questions yeah. we get. And, Ryan, what I would say is, you know, that, that's a great question. I think we should have an introduction call and, and see, see if you qualify, see if there's an opportunity here or if there's not. The point is there's always going to be these questions, and you're always, until you learn, you're going to feel you need to answer questions like like that, the specific technical type question. And just don't put yourself in that position to say, oh, you asked me a specific technical question. Let me go and find the answer, and yeah. then I'm going to come back to you. Because guess what? By the time you come back, they're going to have five other technical questions. Now you're going to go back and research those five. The question is, 
Is there an opportunity? Do you own the building? Do you lease the space? Whatever it is, do you have, is there enough of a basis to warrant us to take the next step? And if there is, let's get it through the process and go from there. I think we've been hanging out too long, Jeremy, because I just answered the, tech, the question from a technical standpoint. You just <laughs> said my line, which is get the service agreement signed and set up a call. Hey, um, what can I say? I'm glad I am finally rubbing <laughs> off. <laughs> Hi, this is Kyle calling from Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I have a couple of questions. One, uh, how much payroll do you need to have to be eligible for R&D? I see in some places it says 50 or, or half a million, and other places 1.5. Well, that's a, that's a good question, and uh, Kyle actually had three questions, so we broke them into three separate parts. So, um, you know, Jeremy, you want to talk a little bit about minimum yeah. payroll criteria? You know, we used to have kind of a, a hard minimum. It has to be $1 million or one point five or 500000 whatever it is in payroll for the, for the credit. But we've kind of learned over the years that every operation is a little different. And because of that, there might be a firm that has a lot of engineering and, and there's a higher qualification, and, and they might only have three or 400000 total payroll, and yet they qualified. We, there's a, a firm down here in Michigan a few years back that uh, was in just an engineering firm, and the payroll wasn't very high, but basically everybody on staff was an engineer. Well, because of that, there was a lot more QREs, qualified research expenditures, and, and therefore the, they were able to, to get some pretty nice credits, even with a very low, by comparison, total payroll. Yeah. In fact, there's a document that addresses this um, that's out there called the uh, value proposition, and it talks about uh, the difference in payroll. And I... You know, I mean, to kind of explain that a little bit, in maybe a typical job shop that's maybe, let's say, $2 million in payroll, and let's say that we go in and we look at their activities and we find, you know, don't take this as, as a rule of thumb, but let's say we find 15% um, that, you know, maybe is qualified activities, and of that, it breaks down the math and that value proposition of exactly what they're going to get on that 15% of payroll. Well, when you think about it in terms of that, and then let's say you move into you know a, a specialty niche, maybe a software company that maybe eighty-five or even a hundred percent may qualify, you can see that a you know six hundred thousand dollar payroll software company could actually get a larger credit and therefore yield a higher fee than a $2 million non-technical job shop yeah. without CNC machines or different things yeah, like that. We've done R&D credits for software firms with two employees. Yeah. it's it, it, Both of those two are 100% of the payroll of the company. They're both on W-2, and every single thing they do qualifies for the credit. Yeah, it's only a couple hundred thousand, but guess what? That's a couple hundred thousand that all qualify towards the credit, whereas Ryan said you might have a, a manufacturing environment where only 15% of all their operations qualify as opposed to 100, and you can have this much larger payroll and not anywhere near the same amount of, of QREs. And like Ryan said, fees are associated really with the amount that we're able to get them. So I would never disqualify uh, based on just what their total company payroll is. We need to know a little bit more yeah. about their operation. I think I would start by opening up the app, going to R&D, uh, clicking on you know maybe the the detailed presentation version, and there's a slide in there that references all the qualified activities. And the real question is, you know, what do they do? Which of those do they do? How technical are they in nature? 
And, you know, again, I, it, just like with cost sag, I think last week or two weeks ago, Jeremy, I said, at one end of the spectrum, you've got a wide open warehouse. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have maybe a medical facility divided all into six by ten rooms. Well, that same spectrum exists with R&D. And a good way to think of it is how technical are they in nature? But even that's subjective because yeah. what's technical to one person isn't technical to yeah. another. What matters is what's technical to the IRS. Yeah, and and we wouldn't know until our team started really rolling up their sleeves and digging into identifying how technical they really are in the in the eyes of the IRS. Yeah, these are all things, um, team, that I would say are, are kind of really conversations that aren't for before the service agreement. I mean, these are all, when you get asked these kinds of questions, we're giving you the answer. But I think, frankly, you want to tee to the fact that this is something we're going to look at in our initial review. This is why our fee structure is the way that it is, is so that clients can be confident that, you know, hey, that's part of our initial process that we're going to yeah. do. Just sign this authorization, and we're going to see if you qualify. Whether yeah. you have one employee or 100 employees, we don't know yet. Sign this authorization, and we'll get going from there. All right. Jeremy, let's go to a second question. And then in regards to cost segregation, when you run a savings estimate on the calculator and it comes out $100,000, how is that money saved to the client? Because um, it's not actually a savings. And is it done over a period of time? Can you explain that? Wow, Jeremy, uh, talk about a loaded question there. Yeah, you know, it, it's a great question, and it really comes down to what we call utilization. Uh, you know, how is this client of ours going to utilize the benefit that we're able to get them, and in what form or facet? And, of course, there's not a one-way black or white answer, just like there yeah. seems to never be. But uh, when the calculator spits out 100000 and Ryan can talk a little bit about how the calculator works, but... Uh, that's spitting out the estimated savings based upon an estimated tax rate. We don't know if the client is going to get a check back because that really depends on how much they've paid in. Sometimes clients want to use the benefit going forward. So if we get them $100,000 in tax savings and they pay 50000 guess what? They have 50000 now and they have another 50000 going forward. It's not that simple. I'm dumbing it down, obviously. But they can get either a check back from the IRS, they can get a reduction on their current tax liability, or they can have that extra depreciation expense in their back pocket for future profitable years. How they utilize it, it's completely up to them. Our job, obviously, is just to identify it and then put it on paper for them. Well, let's talk about the, the number itself. When we say hundred grand. Um, we calculate this number a little different than most cost seg firms. In fact, I get kind of frustrated, Jeremy, when I'm on a, a cost seg firm's website and they want to throw out these exorbitant 170, 175,000 per million because they're talking gross numbers there of moved depreciation. That's a large gap between that and benefit. And again, in order to calculate what the actual benefit is, I mean, one of the main factors we need to know is what their effective tax rate is. That's the main one uh, right there because that we can do the same amount of work and for, for two different clients, the exact same building, everything is identical, but one's paying 25% tax rate, one's paying 35% tax rate. The one paying 35 is going to have a larger benefit. So it's it, whether we do it that way or not, it's really irrelevant. Now, what Ryan was saying, yes, a lot of the other websites and other cost seg firms, what they'll say is, 
you know, we're going to find 20% acceleration. So it's a million dollar building, and we believe we're going to accelerate 200,000, 20%. So they just put that as the number that yeah. they're able to save. This is a joke. And I so see that number yeah. all the time on websites. All it is is if you – with cost seg, it's a depreciation expense. It's not like R&D where it's a tax credit. It's, it's an expense. So if I gave you a $200,000 expense, that's not cash. That's not savings really. That is a number that can generate – a potential benefit, but on its own is not. So we don't quote that number. We quote the number after an effective tax rate, a multiplier that we like to use. We usually use 35% effective tax rate because that's the standard corporate rate. So we take the, that two, in this theory, we take 200000 multiplied by the 35%, and now we come up with a number that is a true savings number. But again, it's based upon the client's yeah. tax rate. You know, Jeremy, let me use an example that's far more complicated than cost seg. And yes, there is a government-sponsored program that is far more complicated than cost seg. What could this be? The state lottery. Oh. And, um, you know, I I have to speak in generalities because, you know, every state obviously runs their lottery a little bit different. So, you know, don't quote me on these numbers. But but if somebody I've studied out of interest – which is sad, but um, <laughs> for fun. Yeah. And uh, so let's talk about how the lottery is like cost seg. That'd be a good, good oh, blog. Oh, good blog. Article. You can write that one. Absolutely. So, okay, so let's say that they're advertising the billboard, you know, $100 million. And, you know, this is the big number that everyone wants to talk about. And, you know, because it sells things. It's well marketing. Well, that's comparable to the number when, when Jeremy was saying, hey, we're going to accelerate. And that's the $200,000 per million number that you hear cost seg firms use. So that's $100 million is what the lotto is. But then you have some other factors. Um, first of all, that's only representative of anywhere from 40 to 60% of lotto sales. And really the rest of it went to education, it went to sales commissions, it went to other things. And so what you're left with is this number of $100 million that they're going to go out there and advertise. But of that, the person has some real – if you were to ask, hey, how much did you get? $100 million is not the actual number. It's, it's much more complex with that. And really they need to get a financial planner involved to get to that yeah. end result. And so what that may look like in a, in a bad case scenario is, first of all, they may take the upfront payment – you know, uh, because the the hundred million is based on best case scenario, and the upfront payment is you know in some states upwards of fifty percent. So now they're at fifty million dollars. However, the problem is because they're taking that upfront payment, and they've now put themselves in the absolute highest tax bracket uh, in the world, um, you know, or at least in the country. Um, they put themselves in the highest tax bracket. They may only take home upwards of half of that. So now we're down to $25 million, and there may be fees and penalties even on that. So, again, if you look at this program and you think of it in terms of that, you have to realize cost seg is a lot like the lottery in the aspect that we're going to go out there and, and, like Jeremy said, we may find a basis of $200,000, but let's say that they're at an effective tax rate of, say, 35%. Well, now we're down to $70,000. We just lost all that money because even though this is an expense – they're going to be taxed on it the same way. But now even that we're down to $70,000, we still have to determine how are we going to take this. And, Jeremy, like you mentioned earlier, I couldn't even go in all the directions. I mean, you could uh, – some. I, let me tell you some of them I've heard of. And that is you could carry that $70,000 expense 
sometimes backwards against a profitable quarter or profitable year and maybe generate a refund. Um, you could use it to offset quarterly tax payments that you've already paid this year and request a refund. You could use it, uh, you know, more commonly for future where you just say, um, you know, let, let's just use it to offset quarterly taxes that are upcoming. Uh, really, guys, there's just so many ways, and I know it's kind of a common theme today, but the, the thing is is that we're kind of stepping over a line at this point, Jeremy. This is not our wheelhouse. We are yeah. not their CPA. Yeah. Just like if I was a, a lottery sales guy, I'm not their financial planner. I can't tell them what's best and how to take yep. that money. Oh, that's exactly right. And, and we have some experience because we've been doing this for a, a period of time. We know our industry inside and out. The CPA, as we've talked about, has, has a, a whole not, it's a whole other can of worms over there, what they're dealing with. But the one, one thing I can say to kind of wrap up this question is traditionally what people do when they do a cost seg is they use what's called a 481 adjustment. And what that allows them to do is to catch up the missed depreciation, the missed accelerated depreciation from the year they got the building until the year that they're doing the study. So say they got the building five years ago and we're doing the study today, did they miss out on five years' worth of missed accelerated depreciation? Well, yes, they did, but they can recapture that into the current tax year through what's called the 481 adjustment. The CPA has to fill out a 3115 form, and that will enable the client to catch up that five years' worth of missed accelerated depreciation into the current year. However, now you have five years' worth of depreciation expense, you might not be able to use five years' worth of depreciation expense. You might only need two years, and you might need 10 years' worth of it. There's all of these factors. So at the end of the day, I don't know how much this client's going to get. No, not without talking to them, not without understanding their situation, looking at their depreciation schedule, finding out from their CPA how they want to proceed. Uh, you know, It's really all of that side of things out of our wheelhouse. Our job is to confirm and say, yes, this is what we're looking at. These are the new basis numbers. These are the appropriate buckets, so to speak. You hear us talk about that. So, Jeremy, I think the 41 adjustment really ties in to Kyle's last question. And then lastly, what what savings programs would require an actual amendment to the tax return? Thank you. Well, um, great questions, Kyle, by the way. Um, the So... <laughs> This is, this is, again, just such a loaded question. I, I don't know. I mean, I guess none of them require uh, amendments to the tax returns. It's just all about how they want to take it. Let, let's take R&D for, for a second. Um, you know, does someone have to amend returns to take the R&D tax credit? No, uh, they don't. They could look at a, a current year study. They could even look at current year and last year's open year and mm-hmm. do all of that. So maybe they could do a two-year uh, review without ever amending a return. Um, and we've had people do that. that. Maybe for one reason or another, they don't want to amend returns. That's common. A lot of a lot of co- companies, that's a turnoff. If, if they feel they have to amend a tax return to get a benefit, they just say, no, thank you. No, what tends to happen or can happen is that then we're in there and we're looking at amounts and we're saying, hey, over the last couple of years, you're looking at $400,000. Are you sure you don't yeah. want to amend? <laughs> you know, maybe I am interested in amending. <laughs> yeah, all, all of a sudden, this doesn't seem like a lot of work, you know. But you know, back to the question of what do you have to amend a return for? I, you know, I guess the answer is none. Um, it may be beneficial to amend, but we don't know that until we're, you know, really midway to maybe even three quarters through yeah. the process. Let's talk about cost seg. Jeremy, when do they have to amend a return? Yeah, never. Uh, in fact, 
I'm not sure. I'm sure there's been some amendments because, again, we don't know what the CPA is doing all the time. We're putting our numbers together, and we put together a, a beautiful 60-page report with all of the information, as Ryan was talking about. Thank you. It is. Um, case law. Uh, the the obviously all the new numbers and and, and the pictures to substantiate the the, uh, the facility, but do I really know what the CPA is doing with that report once I hand it to them? No, uh, I don't. And maybe they're using it to amend a prior return. Maybe they're using it not to. I you know I don't I, really know. I can think of some times specifically a few years ago. I won't go too in detail, but there was a five year rollback plan that had been introduced by the Obama, Obama administration. And, I, you know, I know I heard some stories then of people were using it to go back. What they were doing is they were – I'm probably going to massacre this and shouldn't even say it, but they were uh, using it to generate losses in current year. Yeah, they could pick, carry And then they carry it back up to five year. I, again, you're way outside of my wheelhouse at this point. And I wouldn't even want to be in that wheelhouse because yeah. this is between the client and the CPA. And remember, our our job is we want to build a good relationship with the CPA. So our job is to produce a report – that they feel very confident in the the integrity of it, the quality of it. They feel confident in the uh, audibility of it, if that's a word. Auditability. And auditability, maybe. maybe. Right. They, you know, they feel comfortable in that. What they do with those line items, where they apply it, uh, how they apply it, which years they carry it back. You know, we're there. You know, Jeremy, I think if someone reached out to you and asked you, we could probably connect them. But for the most part, CPAs are pretty comfortable with this. They they know what to do, and I think frankly they'd be offended if we got yeah. in their wheelhouse and started. Uh, yes, well, especially when they know the entire picture. We we, yeah. we know the picture of the building that we were hired to do a cost segregation study on, but we don't know the whole financial or business picture behind the scenes that our study is going to have implications towards. Maybe there's trust a trust issue. Maybe there was a sale trust, of uh, yeah, like a trust not, account not, issue, like a, like trust. Yeah. Like like not, trust. not trusting us, but uh, maybe there is a trust, trust or revocable Sorry. trust. But but there could be other issues. They could have other businesses and, and things of that nature. So there's so many different things behind the scenes when it comes to what we're talking about. Again, this is all utilization. Almost all of these questions are based on how do companies utilize the savings and the monies that we're able to generate. And I think after you know 15, 20, 30 minutes, you found out that we don't know. Yeah. Uh, and 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 I hope that uh, that helped. But you know, Jeremy, I can't say in all honesty that we get asked these kind of questions. If if that's what you're worried about is maybe, you know, that you're going to get out there and you're going to ask these questions, I wouldn't be too concerned about that. I, Jeremy, you and I have been doing this a long time, and I really can't remember many times where uh, a CFO or a business owner got this, you know, hey, I'm not signing this service agreement until you answer these questions. It's it just really... I don't think the typical owner even knows to ask these questions. No, and once we tell them the reality, they respect that. The reality is you have a CPA. You pay that CPA a decent amount per hour to know how to handle these issues. That's not me. This is my wheelhouse. I'm gonna. I'm an expert in, in this example, breaking down your building. We're going to come in. We're going to do uh, the best report in the industry. We're going to defend it 100%. But that's our wheelhouse is sticking right there. When it comes to how you're going to take these numbers and put it on your tax returns and things of that nature, you and your CPA need to have a conversation about that. Yeah, and I think they're fine with that. Um, you know, I, I just had one the other day, Jeremy, where uh, you know an advisor was asking, so the client wants a reference. And I said, great, get their CPA on the phone. And the advisor said, oh, have we done work with that CPA? And I said, no, but we're about to. 
And there's no greater reference to anyone than their own CPA. And I would say that about all these questions. I'd say, listen, during the initial process, we're going to work directly with your CPA to find the right way to apply this. But I, I don't really think there's any way to answer these types of questions uh, yeah. Not effectively, not with integrity. And, and don't try. And I think that's what we're com- coming around to. Don't put yourself in the position to try to answer these questions. Uh, if they come up, which, as Ryan said, it's very rare to get too technical of a question such as this, unless you are somehow opening yourself up to a question like yep. this. If you're putting yourself in a position to to have the client ask this question, then you've made, probably made some, some mistakes in your pitch. But traditionally, you shouldn't have these questions. You, you stick in your wheelhouse. You let them know what we're going to do. And all of these questions will come out in the wash throughout the process. These are not questions that we answer prior to engaging with them. These are all questions that are part of our process. And we'll, at the end of our study, when we provide the reports to the CPA, the CPA will be able to go to the client and say, here's your benefit. Yeah. Well, Jeremy, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank everyone for joining us. And uh, as a reminder, you too can have your question broadcast live on the SalesCast. And uh, that is done by opening the app and clicking Ask a Question, Share a Story. Thanks, everybody, and we will see you next week. All right, guys. Thanks so much.